sandwich generation is a phrase I somehow missed for most of my life, probably because up until I met my guest, Peggy Flynn, in 2012, I wasn't in the sandwich. The term, if you're not familiar with it either, refers to people in their 30s and 40s who suddenly find themselves caring not only for their young children, but also for their aging parents. I fell into the sandwich by default. I'm the only child of divorced parents and was the only family member within a 2,600-mile radius of my father when his life fell apart. And when I say fell apart, it fell apart. It was the unraveling of a marriage. It was the unraveling of health. It was all the things all at once. But the moment my dad moved in with us into my home office, I learned very quickly that the sandwich and the struggle was real because there I was sandwiched between my very young kids and my dad. And it's not an exaggeration when I say that I would not have survived those sandwich years with my body, mind, and soul intact had it not been for my guest on this week's podcast, Miss Peggy Flynn. Peggy Flynn is a writer, a caregiver, spiritual director, and geriatric care consultant. She brings 40 years of caregiving and end-of-life experience with 300 people. Just to be clear, that means she's like a death midwife. She helps usher people into that next stage. She's even written a book called The Caregiving Zone. And once you find yourself in The Caregiving Zone, you need this book to get through it with your brain intact, right? It's a must read. But Peggy is hilarious. She's irreverent and she's dead honest and exactly the kind of person you need in your corner when you're in the middle of a sandwich. I didn't even know that Peggy, people like Peggy existed until I found myself in the sandwich. And I wanted to record my conversation with Peggy because it addresses some really important topics that normally don't get airtime. Things like, what do you do if you have to choose between your own health and caring for an aging parent? Hint, not making the choice is its own choice. Or I have to take care of my father or my mother. Where do I begin? What happens now? What happens with the money, the financial aspect of it? How do I begin to figure out what resources are available and what I can afford? This is the most paralyzing part for a lot of us, the very beginning. Or how about this question? What does, quote unquote, good daughter, or good son look like in this situation? Turns out it's the wrong question to even ask. Or how about this? Should families treat elder care like they would a small business? Don't knock it till you hear the reasoning. Or lastly, what if your parent is an energy vampire and they live downstairs? Hint, try not to develop a drinking problem and get help ASAP. (laughs) There are so many questions that come up when you find yourself in the sandwich and not a lot of safe places to talk about the answers. There are a lot of cultural taboos wrapped up in this conversation. And while I was in the sandwich, I discovered that I'm not alone. I wasn't alone. According to a Pew Research study, more than one in 10 parents in the United States are also caring for an adult. And I found that sandwich people, as I now like to call us, can feel afraid of sounding disloyal by giving voice to the trauma of caring for a sick or dying parent while also caring for and raising little humans. And my hope is that by sharing my story, and talking to Peggy on record, it frees other people to speak more openly about their experiences. And so as for my story, my sandwich season hit really hard and it hit fast. My dad was in terrible shape. He had a medical file so thick, every single doctor we spoke to commented on just how massive his medical file was. Nine back surgeries, rheumatoid arthritis, that isn't even the half of it. Pain and desperation were turning my father's normally optimistic personality upside down and inside out. And I worked hard during this time of caring for him to keep my coaching business strong, my husband and I close, my children loved and cared for, while also learning how to move a grown, very large man in and out of a wheelchair and off to his millions of doctor's appointments while also learning how to change his diaper without him or me dying of humiliation and embarrassment. 
I had to learn how to tend to his chronic bed sores that were in places that you really don't want to end up. I had to shampoo his hair. All of this while also making sure he had his scotch and water. While also processing a lifetime of questions about him and about me. And about a month into our arrangement with him living with me, with us, I realized that the narrative I had spent a lifetime constructing and defending about him wasn't quite right. And the narrative he had constructed about me and who I am wasn't quite right either. And while I'm changing his diapers and making his scotch and soda and keeping my kids fed and loved and my husband close, it turns out that I discovered that my dad and I had been in two different relationships under the guise of one single father-daughter dynamic. And it wasn't really our fault. We hadn't lived under the same roof since I was four years old. And while we spent a lot of weekends together, we didn't do a lot of talking. We mostly went to the movies and I tagged along as we visited his friends. And now here we were dealing with each other in very raw terms, up close and personal, every day. Three months into this live-in arrangement, I could feel the cracks forming in my psyche. And in the end, we made the choice to move him into what would become a series of homes for him, escalating to meet the level of care he needed as his needs escalated. But even with him living outside of my home, the assignments and the tasks that he required were endless. In fact, one of my favorite things about my dad was his sense of humor. And he had the absolute best one-liners. And one of my favorites is he was on our way to a doctor's appointment. He'd look at me and be like, honey, it's like wiping your ass with a hula hoop. That shit never ends. <laughs> and off we would go. God bless him. He was hilarious. And while our relationship definitely got more honest through the sandwich years, it never got any easier. It got more authentic, but it never got easier. And in the end, all I could do was continue to show up and try and be kind and loving and helpful. And sometimes I showed up through gritted teeth. And when my father passed away last January, the grieving process was complicated because whatever feeling of loss I had about him dying, that feeling of loss was eclipsed by a bigger feeling. And that feeling was relief something that when you're the bereaved, you're not supposed to talk about. And for a full year after he died, I had recurring nightmares that it wasn't over and that I was needed immediately at the nursing home. And I would wake up just dripping with sweat, reaching for my car keys, ready to apologize for whatever I had done to contribute to whatever crisis was happening. Caring for my dad was so challenging, it became a minor form of PTSD for me. And the recurring nightmares have gone away quite considerably since I hit the one-year mark, but they're not completely gone. And here's the absolute truth. When my father died, I felt like I had completed a moral, emotional, psychological, and physical ultramarathon. And I gave that race everything I had. I hadn't run it perfectly, but I saw it through to the end, and I was glad it was over. I was glad to see him free, and I was glad to reallocate my emotional resources. And this episode is dedicated to you if you are in the sandwich or have been past, present, future sandwich people. My goal in this podcast is to tell the absolute truth about what it's like to be in the sandwich. And it's my attempt to say to my other sandwich people, I see you. It's not easy. The world wants to write a narrative about you being a good little girl or a good little boy caring for everything and keeping all those balls in the air. And I'm here to tell you, that narrative is dangerous, and we need to start telling the truth about what it's like to be in the sandwich. My other intention for this episode is to offer Peggy Flynn's insights and fresh ways of looking at this issue. She is one of the few voices I heard through my entire experience of those six or seven years, or however many years it was, I don't even know. She was one of the few voices that made sense and that honored the totality of the situation. It honored my love for my father. It also honored how difficult our relationship was and how much strain I was under. But fair warning, look, you know, there's a lot of moments of laughter in this episode, but there are moments that you might find really upsetting. It's not an easy conversation, but listen, it's real. And I believe in real conversations. 
And as challenging as they may be, we got to get to the real talk at some point. And if you can't be honest on the 20 Minutes with Bronwyn podcast, where can you be honest? So here we go. I'm just going to drop us right into the conversation and I'll meet you on the other side. And so one of the things I'm talking to people about, I'm not not trying to sell a service or anything, but just talking to people and saying, okay, every one of us is going to need somebody. Mm -hmm. Who's your team? And how willing are you to negotiate? How willing are you to adapt? And, you know, maybe it's geographic, you know, making a move. Maybe it's why don't people want to be around me? (laughs) You know, I know that that's funny, but it's like. It's true. Well, there's so many articles. I'm going to do a blog on this from my own site, but Mm -hmm. there's so many articles around the news. There's a term unbefriended elderly, Mm. the lonely elder. You know, have as a subtext, you know, it's kind of like too bad, too sad. Oh, my God. You know? Yeah. Well, well, one of the things is really looking in the mirror and saying, why am I alone? Yeah, that's right. You know, is anyone going to want to be around me? Am I attractive in that sense? That's it. That's you it. know, do I do I further other people? Do I contribute? You know, so one of the things is to really, and it's not about blaming the victim. Yeah. It's not about that whole, you know, you brought this on yourself. Yeah. It's really saying, and for me, it's about empowerment because I can say, wow, like me at 65 saying, you know, shit, goddamn fuck. I'm, I'm stranded <laughs> here. Yeah. yeah. Back to me. You know what I mean? Oh, my God. You know, what if, yeah. it's, what if we, you know, blah, blah, blah. But to really look in the mirror and say, okay, I need to, I need to make some adjustments here. But I think if people need to get to that place of saying, okay, I'm 70 years old. My, even if I have kids, they might be on two different coasts. My husband might be dead or, or yeah. you know, and I might live to be 90. That's and right. Finding someone who'll give you good feedback. Yep. About the fact that, oh, you know, you complain all the time. You haven't had a new thought in 30 years. <laughs> You know, uh, you, you, you know, to really give some feedback because then once you could do that, you could say, wow, okay, maybe we look at some psychotherapy. Yeah. Maybe we look at, you know, some sort of overhaul of attitude and begin and, to work on being more attractive. So true. It's one of those things where to really like say, and this fits in for me in terms of like going back to school and stuff is like women in my family, I mean, assuming the cancer's gone, is when my family can go to their 90s. Yeah. Fully yeah. complimented. Yep. What to do. So I think part of it is being in that place of self-questioning yeah. instead of, and I, I do a fair amount of complaining. I do a fair amount of all that stuff. But yeah. to yeah. really say, wait a minute, how am I, and this is for me the classic line, how am I part of the problem? Because that's the only way I can be part of the solution. And here's the thing. Here's the thing that I think is the truth, the whole truth about this, is that the percentage of people that are problematic that end up alone or lonely or surrounded by people that are just tolerating them, a very small percentage of those people are capable or interested in that level of self-reflection. You know what I mean? Like, it is rare. You know, and my dad would have moments of lucidity around that, and I'd think, holy crap, he just had a breakthrough. How great. And then the next day it was gone. It was like a flash of lucidity. And when I say lucidity, I mean he would see past his own narcissism for just a moment. And I would think, oh, my God, that's a guy I can be with more, please. And then it was gone. Right. But I think that there's 46 million people right now over the age of 65. Wow. And that number is going up. Yeah. So there aren't going to be caregivers. We aren't going to be able to import the whole of the Philippine Islands. Right. Take care of or every village in Guatemala or whatever. Right. So one That's of the right. things is we're going to be taking care of each other. Yeah. So one of the things that this is a research project I tried to get funded. It didn't work. I didn't mm-hmm. get the funding for it. But mm-hmm. one of the things we learned from the HIV epidemic is a lot about peer caregiving. The mm-hmm. less sick person was taking care of the more sick person. Oh, interesting. These were, these were peers. And peers, they don't have the same buttons to push. That okay. is so freaking true. It's like, what is this cosmic joke where the generation that is the most triggered by these people ends up being, like, having to deal with them in such close proximity and such high volumes? It's brutal. You know, part of it is our model of caregiving is intergenerational. Yeah. 
Whereas in terms of the aging population, like me coming back to Milwaukee, yeah, eventually I'm 70, my sister-in-law is 65, my brother's 64. Mm-hmm. Their kids live in other states. Yeah. And have very full lives. Yeah. It's going to be three of us that are looking after each other. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it behooves us to build a relationship, but we don't have those same, there's not the same mother buttons or father buttons or um, or like it, tri- tribal expectations. In fact, one of the biggest words you gave me, and I've since done a whole podcast on it in a completely different context, but I remember when I was going through what I went through with my father, trying to untangle what is a cultural expectation that is useful and what is just a giant inherited boundary violation and where am I losing myself in this thing trying to be a quote-unquote good daughter and the word you said to me was individuation which is very much a Jungian concept right yeah but like where does individuation come into sharp relief when it comes to caring for a problematic elderly parent I think what it comes down to is a really solid needs assessment a really detailed needs assessment from both sides, both the parent and the child doing a needs assessment. Yeah. And then really looking, and I've had some success with this in, with some people, mm-hmm. is imagining it as looking at it as a small business. You know, you can talk about cash flow. You can talk about income statements. But what it does is it takes it out of the family culture dynamic, all of the unconscious stuff, and puts it out there on, on a spreadsheet. Mm. to say I have this many hours okay well okay I have five hours a week you need 30 that's right 25 how are we going to get that handled so you have that neutral space so Mm. like you know I mean care plans when I first was doing care plans in the 80s early 90s they were about 80% medical and 10% financial and 10% relationships Mm-hmm. And that's totally shifted 180. Now they're 80% financial, 10% relationships, 10% medical. Wow. So the fact you're talking about that kind of money, okay, then it is a business. And if you yeah. see it like a small business, first of all, you have a small business. I mean, you bring a whole level of, there's so many, so much expertise out there. Right. And right. it also creates a neutral zone where you're not looking at mom Right. right. And it's not about I gave, you know, like I've heard women say to their adult children, I gave you life and you're abandoning, (laughs) you know, like, like, you know, like it's Greek tragedy or it's an opera, you know, it's like, no, you need this. And here's what we can do now. Let's be creative. Yeah. Yeah. And let's say, wow, let's see what else we come up with here. Yeah. and then all of a sudden there's like, okay, because everybody's told the truth. That's exactly right. That's and exactly, keeps telling the truth. Exactly because right. like, you know, business plan, every plan works until you actually try to implement it. Mm-hmm. But so, you know, so business plans change and you look at every quarter and you re-examine yeah. it. But you're re-examining it from the standpoint of, okay, we've got a needs assessment out here. It's um, a needs-based filter through which you see everything. It's not should doesn't get involved or, no, you know, no. what a good daughter or a good son is, isn't even part of it. I have so many friends right now, Peggy, that are, you know, their problematic parents are sort of coming to roost in their lives and they're upside down over it because they're like, my self-concept is that I'm a good person. I'm a caring child, despite the fact that my parent was way less than ideal to me through my life, but if they're now my responsibility, it's like their marriages are under pressure, their children aren't getting the best of them. It's a disaster because it's through a cultural filter instead of just a, what does this person need, what do I need filter? Yeah, I mean, one of the things though, and I think this is where the individuation process comes in, is to stand up, to stand up against the family system, whatever that dynamic is, stand up against the culture, yeah. Um, say, I'm a person, and that's right. What I take in this situation, and so one of the things, you know, like the whole idea of, you know, the guilt and all that stuff that has to be processed. Yeah. But it's also like, and one of the things I've said to you, I said to, I've said to other people, is if it's a choice between your parent and your children, it's got to be your children. Hundred percent. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And so to, to individuate is to say, listen, uh, mom and dad, you know. I see that you need certain things. I'll give you one example. I worked with a family where, you know, the the parents wanted to stay in their home, right? Mm -hmm. It was a two-story, you know, home with the 
the laundry in the basement. So the bedrooms oh, are up there. Well, you know, it was in the Midwest. And, yeah. and they wanted to stay in their home. And someone had to do the laundry, right? I mean, wow. someone had to. So to be able to say, and the, the mother was still doing the laundry and, and risking her hip, risking a fall every time she went down those stairs with a yeah, basket. Yeah, time. So I said, well, you know, why not just do something where you have a bin and she can just throw it down and then walk down and then pull the stuff out of the bin. That's right. You know, we're talking very simple here. Yeah, yeah. And realize that it's only going to get worse over the next five to ten years and plan to move to a single level place. Yeah. Now, one of the things is when people dig their heels in and, you know, you're going to carry me out of here feet first or whatever. They're adults and they're encompassmentists. They get to make that choice. They do. Individual, you get to make the choice. I'm not coming to do your laundry. Maybe we pay for a laundry service. Right. Exactly. exactly. And if you break That's your hip, exactly. you need to understand that I can't move back with you. I can't come cross country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to have to figure out if you break your hip, if you fall and break your hip, I cannot be here for you. So okay. let's put a plan in place to keep you safe. No, you can't keep a person safe. I mean, you really can't. I mean, That's true. Well, you, you can't, you know, but you could say, okay, mom, if you fall and break your hip, you need to know I'm not coming back for an extended stay. I might come back for a weekend or something. That's it. So you need to know right now that we're going to have this home care agency on speed dial. That's right. Everybody's up front before the catastrophe. That's it. But, you know, what do you do about, I can't even tell you how many members of my family have used this logic with me. When I try and have these tough conversations with various members of my own family, the response was, oh, well, let me tell you, I'm never going to outlive my money. Subtext is I would commit suicide were I ever to run out of money. And here's the thing. That's not what happens. <laughs> or like, I'd rather die than live in a nursing home. Oh, really? Because that's not how it happens. It's not like all of a sudden you're like, oh, God, I have to move into a nursing home. I guess I'm going to take some cyanide. Like, that's not how it works. And people still use that argument. I gave a talk a couple of years before I left San Francisco. And so these are, you know, upper middle class, highly educated people, very self-motivated. They wanted me to give a talk. They invited me to give a talk on caregiving. So I'm there. I've got my PowerPoint, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. And I'm talking about it. And I'm looking at their faces and I'm getting nothing. Absolutely oh, nothing. Geez. Right? Oh, jeez. So you know how that, I mean, I'm sure you've had that experience. It's and not a good feeling. I'll tell you what. It's not a good feeling. But I stopped and I said, wait a minute. I said, you know, I'm not getting anything. <laughs> so <laughs> I love it. Peggy, cool. you're doing the check-in. That's what I always tell clients. If you can tell you're bombing, don't keep going. Check in. Well, I love I it. I just, you know, because I love the time. Well, I have to always watch it because, you know, whether I'm talking about the Trinity or whatever. I mean, That's it's just crazy. like you're, or, you know, European intellectuals or whatever. I get so excited that I can completely miss. So I really, I really make an effort. So I'm looking at these people. There are about 50 people. And I know nothing, nothing. So I said, I said, okay, something's going on here. And this woman said, well, I don't really need to know about caregiving because when I get to the point where I can't drive, I'm going to kill myself and take care of it it. and take care of business. And this was really fascinating to me because I take care of business. In other words, I'm going to be a responsible adult and take care of business. Okay. So I said, okay, let everybody close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. Every person here who's planning, who's end of life plan, end of life care plan or aging care plan is suicide. Raise your hands. <gasps> and two thirds of the group raised their hands. You have got to be kidding me. No. And now these are upper, I mean, we're talking upper middle class in San Francisco. So, you know, we're talking, well, reasonably wealthy. You know? Oh, my God. But I if I that was just my family. <laughs> it's, well, wait a minute. So I stopped and I said, well, you know what? Why am I up here talking about caregiving? Invite me back and I'll do a presentation on assisted suicide. <laughs> so that's what I did. So oh if you wait. want, I'll send, if you, I have the PowerPoint. If you want, I'll send it to you. Oh, my God. Okay, so assisted suicide. So my dad really threw himself into trying to execute on his end of life or his retirement, not retirement plan, but caregiving plan, which was suicide. He tried to talk to everybody. He tried to talk me into helping him. And I was like, Dad, I love you, but I am not 
going to enter into that contract with you. That's just not, that's not happening. And I'm so sorry that things are the way they are because they suck, but I am not doing that. And it was actually, it's actually hard to do in California, even if it's legal. Well, it's one of the things like, so when I did this thing on assisted suicide and I've had, I've had private conversations, but this was the first time I was working with a group, about 50 people came. 55, something like that. But one of the things that they were talking about was the fact that my daughter and I have talked about it. And when the time comes, she'll make up the cocktail, you know, the put everything. Oh, my God. And I said, well, I said, what about, let's see, it goes back to the Greeks talking about matricide. That's one of the oldest taboos in our psyche. In culture. So I said, you know, what what is going to happen to your daughter? And she unpacks it when she deals with it. When she has to deal with the fact, maybe it's two, three, four years down the road, that she has to deal with the fact that she killed her mother. And and killed her mother, not because her mother was necessarily in so much agony from a cancer-related demise that she the pain was too great. She killed her mother because there wasn't a plan in place for caregiving. Or she killed her mother because her mother was afraid her mother had had an illness but did not want to go through the end of Another the round. stage. Yes, you know? right. So it is very nuanced and it's not a one-size-fits-all. But one of the things is that Americans, with our hyper-rationality, and we don't study liberal arts, so we don't, you know, we don't understand like Greek tragedy or the fact <laughs> that, wait a minute, you know, this is the stuff of, this could cause years of depression, especially if the daughter at any point in her life wished her mother was dead, oh God! then it turns out that she's actually done the deed. Oh God, Peggy. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I can't. I can't. How to, how to, and we don't, we don't have enough therapists who are even trained to process stuff and yet, like that. And yet two thirds of this upper middle class segment, that was their plan. That was their plan. It was to kill themselves, and not, not you know not exactly clear on how they were going to. A couple of people, and I do know a couple of people are planning to go to Switzerland, where it's now almost an industry. You know, um, I did not know but, that about Switzerland. Oh yeah, you can go to Switzerland and set it up. You know, and they'll do Holy it there. And Jesus. They've got it set up. The, and but the the term they're using for it now, and if you want, I can send you some articles. Is uh, rational suicide is the term. Oh my gosh. Reason Reasonable suicide or rational suicide. Most of it's economic, not yeah. it's not despair. It's economic, and, and yeah, and for especially for men, but they're usually like taking the rifle out. It's very, it's much more common in the western states. They My take the rifle out of the barn and and uh, or the you know, hook up the car. Um, but it, it's one of those things where it's like I understand people saying, and and what what we're seeing with the economic portion of it is people saying, you know, I, whatever the estate there is, I want to have it for my grandchildren. You know, I don't want to be a burden. And oh, and they don't want to burn through it with all the care, which actually is real. All the care. Yeah. But we're not having nuanced discussions. You know, it's kind of like abortion. You, you know, every woman yeah. has to make an individual decision. So That's right. I think one of the things is that, but this whole thing of like, you know, oh, I'm going to rope people into doing it for me. Oh, Lord. And the high drama of it, instead yeah. of, you know, instead of, hey, what would no drama dying look like? Yeah. Is there such a thing, Peggy? Because you did a lot of, I, yeah, I mean, you yeah. are an expert in it's end of all, life. It's emotional and it, it's rich with feeling, but it doesn't have to be drama. You know, something so interesting happened when my father died. It was like, and I think I told you about this, but just for, you know, one of my dearest friends, Kevin Rice, passed away. And he was like, he was a Ralph Lauren model. I mean, he was in peak physical condition for a 45-year-old man, or I guess he was 44 and he died. And his death was such a gut punch, such a, like a cannon through my center. And I flew down to be with him. And, you know, my dad's nursing home were like, ooh, your dad's really not doing well. And I, and I you know, I'd been through this so many times before with my dad. I was so pissed that he was hijacking this like devastating mourning process that I needed to go through for my friend with my other friends. I was so pissed. And I'm like, I'm not coming back. I have to be here for Kevin. I've been here for you for I don't know how long, dad. Like, give me a break. And sure enough, he died when I was flying back from Kevin's funeral. And when I went to his bedside, I had in my head, Peggy, this 
self-concept, I guess, again, of like, you know what, I'm a spiritual person, I'm going to greet this man's corpse, and I'm going to send him home with love in my heart and the perfect prayer on my lips, because that is who I am. I am a magical unicorn, and I can handle this. And I got to that nursing home, and I got to his bedside, and death was awful. The way he looked was so terrible and scary and hideous that I could barely speak and I literally ran out. And I thought to myself, like my vision of death, I had such romantic notions of how I personally would handle saying goodbye to my father didn't include running out of the room. I can tell you that. Yeah. You know, I feel like you have to confront all of the things you think you're going to do in that situation. I don't know. I'm just curious what your reaction is to that. It's not a Norman Rockwell. It's it's not. Paid for TV movie. There's a book that just came out that I'm going to get a linguist who basically did this whole analysis of the kinds of things people talk about at the end of life as they're dying. And it really resonated with my experience. It's not people saying, oh, you know, I've now figured out the meaning of life and all (laughs) this kind of thing. A lot of people as they're dying are calling out mommy, mommy. Wow. It's been my experience, you know. Wow. I wasn't expecting to hear you say that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a lonely, scary place for the person. Yeah. But I'm proud of you for, I want to tell you, I'm proud of you for running out of the room. Really? Yes. Why do you say that? God, again, I'm so surprised to hear you say that. First of all, it was an honest response. Yeah, it was. And, you know, you didn't torture yourself. You did go. You went. That's right. Okay. You could take it for two minutes. You took it for two minutes, and then you got out of there. So you took care of yourself. That's right. I did. God, thank yeah, you for there, saying that. I did. There was no service. There was no nothing to be served by sacrificing yourself to your romantic notions that you should somehow do this made-for-TV movie that no one was filming. <laughs> <laughs> that is <so laughs> right. It's so right. And actually, it's just a metaphor for actually the entire process of caring for an elderly parent, especially an elderly parent that was problematic in some way, is that it really is a test to see which version of you you're going to choose, the romantic version of how you, quote unquote, should be that kills you slowly, or the honest version of you that isn't maybe what culture thinks a good son or daughter should be, but that ultimately lets you stay healthy and whole and care for your children and your marriage. That's really the question. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that women get stuck with over and over again is being told we're selfish. Yes. Never, I have never heard someone say that man is really being selfish. That yeah. son is being really selfish. But I hear that a lot. Oh, the daughters are so selfish. I'm like, you know what? If they've made a decision about what their resources are, which they have, then, you know, God bless them because we can't be all things to all people and we have to prioritize. We have to really say, well, you know, okay, this is where I am. I mean, one of the, there's two things that I think are important here. Number one is as more and more women are having their children later in life. Yes. When I was 20, I had a lot more energy than when I was in my 40s. That's right. And so a woman in her 40s who's basically perimenopausal, taking care of young children and trying to take care of aging parents, it's a doomed enterprise. I remember talking to you at my breaking point. My father had been living with me for three months. And his care was intense, as you might remember. He was incontinence care is deep. And being the daughter that was changing diapers, keeping bottoms clean, that was me. And not only that, I was caring for wounds in places that really you don't want to clean a wound while maintaining my happy Mary Poppins ways with my two-year-old son, my five-year-old daughter, my you know seven-year-old daughter. And I remember when I talked to you and you asked me something like, so are you having any physical symptoms yet? And I was like, yeah, you got a pen, you know? Yeah. And and you were like, you got to get him out of there. And I was like, holy shit, why have I not come to that conclusion already? And that say Peggy, you saved my life. I'm convinced I would have gotten very ill with something. I really am. I think it would have killed me to keep him there. One of the ways that women get permission to get out from under this kind of work is we get sick. We so get if you're sick, sick you've got right. something visible, then people stop saying you're selfish. They say, oh, she can't do it because now you've proved you can't do it because your leg yeah. fell off. 
that's okay. it. Or you have breast cancer or you're, you yeah, have to have back whatever, surgery, you know? Yeah. Here's one of my best statements. And I say this to myself a lot. <laughs> Sometimes the best person for the job is somebody else. It's so true. So seeing it as a job, I keep coming back to that whole thing of so true. a job, a small business, a job yeah. description, an enterprise, however you want to language it so yeah. that you really get some distance to see this as here's how it works for me. It's like if you think about the fact that home care can be like if you have home care, minimum, minimum is going to be a thousand dollars a month. Yep. Okay. So then you figure ancillary costs and you're pretty much going to be with one thing and another transportation and all this. You can figure fifteen hundred dollars a month minimum. Okay. Yes. That will eventually could escalate up to ten thousand dollars a month. That's right. If you've got a cost of so fifteen hundred so you figure that's like what? Twelve thousand it's about sixteen thousand dollars. So yeah. if you you're you're putting out sixteen grand a year. And mm-hmm. you could be doing that for ten years. Mm-hmm. That's right. Costing about oh, $250,000, which in my world is a quarter of a million dollars. That's exactly right. How is this not a business? That's exactly, exactly right. How is this not a business? I mean, it's like, wait a minute. How are you going to do cost containment? How are you going to do time and charges? That's How are it. you going to value for the dollar? That's and it. then if you say, okay, the person doesn't have a quarter of a million dollars, great. Then we've got to work our network, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But the idea of, by calling some person the most vulnerable, usually the most vulnerable person or the only child, because now so many people only have one which child. Is, which is me. I was the only child. You were the only child. Instead of saying, well, either you'll do it or you're selfish. It's like, that's, no, 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 no. That's, that's not that's that's not good. And it's heightened when you're the only child and you're financially doing well. Then it's like, well, of course you have to take care of them. Of course you have to pay for all of the expenses. They're broke. You're not. If you don't, you're like a double whammy selfish, you know? And and the financial strain that that puts on a couple is insane. Yeah. I mean, and and even that whole thing of, you know, first of all, I kind of got the sense that you're both self-employed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you're both self-employed. Well, Things can collapse overnight. In a heartbeat. So the idea that this whole thing, you've got money. How many people have you known who had money, lost money? A hundred percent. Yeah. So see, but that's also the thing around judgment, like really standing up to other people's judgment and saying, you know, thank you for sharing or or saying nothing. But just like really saying, okay, I'll talk to you in 10 years. (laughs) Step back with me in five years. And then when it's over, February, you know. Because part of it is when, when people say that, like, well, so-and-so should do it because she has money in, in the family system. And I always say, how many kids does she have? Does she want to put right. in college? That's it. That's exactly, could, exactly right. It, things can shift. And so you need to be putting that money aside uh, for That's your own it. retirement, That's for your exactly own, right. own care. And the other thing, I remember getting yeah. shamed a little bit, too. I remember one day on the parking lot of my kids' school, which, oh, God, all kinds of shit goes down in that parking lot, Peggy. But there's always, like, these little these little barbs that happen amongst the women, unfortunately. It's just a cliche. But anyway, this one woman, my dad had just moved in with me, and she's like, oh, that must be so nice having your dad there. I'm like, yeah, kind of. And then, like, six months later, she asked me how I was doing. I said he'd moved out. She said, oh, really? You had to send him out? I said, yeah, I needed to send him to a better spot where he'd get his needs met. She's like, well, how often do you visit him? I said, oh, about once a week. And she goes, well, that's not very much. How come you're not seeing him more often? That doesn't seem like much at all. And it hit me in the solar plexus because I felt the weight of the cultural judgment, but also I wanted to tear her head right off of yes. her tiny shoulders, yes. right? Yes. Like, you yes. don't know what this man is like. You have no idea our background and our history and what's gone down between us. Like, how dare you? You know? Yeah, exactly. So I think one of the things that to say to people, you know, is, is to say we need to evolve as a culture. We need to evolve into a more nuanced, into a more respectful notice when we're spewing those kinds of judgments. That's um, right. Because the other thing is don't criticize a person until you've walked in their shoes. You know That's what I mean? Right. That's we right. Know, but one of the things is the righteousness. I'm entitled to judge your decision. But here's the thing. Because you're an adult child of an alcoholic, 
Yeah. You've grown up in such a culture of shame. Those receptors, those buttons are so available. Oh, so sensitive. They're like little fern tendrils, like waving in the air in the breeze. Yes, yes, getting slammed. That's right. You know, that's so one exactly of the right. That your work then is to cover up those buttons. Yes. Okay, and, so and Peggy, so, tell me yeah. this, because for people out there listening that are in the place that I was in, or are about to go into that place and jump into the sandwich, how do we cover up the buttons? Because that to me has been my biggest journey in individuation and learning who I am and making choices from that place versus what other people want or think. That has been a arduous process of covering those buttons. I think one of the things, first of all, is to identify what buttons you have. Mm. A lot of that is that you can get from your autobiography, just going, who, you know, who makes me crazy? It's so true. Who can totally, who can totally derail me? So just think about it. You're going along, you're feeling kind of good that day, and someone says something about, Oh, what an interesting suit. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What, a, what an interesting color combination. I would never think to wear that. Okay. Now, women, metacommunication, for someone like me, that would not be a button. That wouldn't be a button for but, me either. Yeah. Right. But for but some what, women, it would send them into a complete tailspin. Yes. Yes. So one of the things is to really like, what buttons do you have? Yeah. And get it from like if you're an ACA we know there's enough from that population we know what the but a lot of those buttons are so ACOA adult children of alcoholics okay so first of all what buttons do you have and then you can maybe do some therapy maybe do some journal writing yep. to kind of diffuse them if you think because like the buttons I have which I still have they're more like the detonator caps on TNT <laughs> <laughs> I so feel you. <laughs> they, can, they can blow up my day. They just don't like put a dent in my day. They can blow it up. Okay. And so, you know, so one of the things is like, okay, what buttons do you have? And then the other thing is, when are you more vulnerable than other times? So like, again, for ACOA things is the HALT program. Never let yourself get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Oh, my because God. I've buttons. never heard of that either. Never oh. let yourself get too hungry, angry, angry lonely, or tired. Or tired. <gasps> yeah. Oh, because my then, God. That's when you're obsessive compulsive or you're those, uh, or the compulsive eating or, you know, that's when those behaviors are going to kick in. Oh, my God. That's I love also when that. You're are like so available. That's when they really are detonator caps. Okay. So mine are so available. I'm just going back to that parking lot conversation because I'm actually an introvert. And after dropping my kids off and, and moving through all of those people and saying so many hellos, my defenses are gone by the time I get back to my car. I've spent my entire battery life just getting, and I don't drop my kids. I mean, I, they literally get out of the car now, but when they were little, I would walk them. And by the time I got back to the car, all of my defenses were down, and that's when that woman zinged me with that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, so, that, so now you say, okay, now the kids have to, you know. So part of it is that whole thing around, okay, you know, you're an introvert, so you know that your buttons are on the outside, okay? They are. Mine are on the inside. So it takes a lot more to get to me because yeah. of the way I'm made than it takes to get to you. Mm. You're, you're like, it's like open season. I mean, you're just like, <laughs> you're so like true. you know what I mean? It's a button pushers. You know what I mean? People, people so true. push your buttons inadvertently. You, they may not even intend to push your buttons. Oh, a hundred percent. It's so true. It's yeah. so true. See, for me, like for someone to push my buttons, they've really got to be intentional, which means that I really have to pay attention to that because that person then is not necessarily a good person for me to be around. Yeah. Yeah. In general, I think that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the things is like, okay, where are the buttons? What buttons do you have? What will trigger those buttons? Who are the people in your life who do it consciously or unconsciously? Because it doesn't matter. It's still getting triggered. Mm -hmm. And then you have to recover from when they're triggered. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, just to press pause on that yeah. thought for a second, because this is another thing you really helped me with when I was going through the stuff with my dad. My dad had just a wonderful side of him and then a not so wonderful side of him. And I noticed that when I visited him, the first 20 minutes were always great. And at about minute 22, 
things would go off the rails and the criticisms and the barbs and the cruel remarks would start coming. And so at minute 22, the minute, and I think it was you that told me this, the minute it turns, you get the hell out. And the other thing I noticed was that he didn't turn on me if my children were with me. And so you had the great idea of like going on outings with the kids back when he was able to go out or making sure the kids are with us so that only the good part of my dad came through. And that was enormously useful because I I wasn't comfortable walking away from him despite how difficult he was on me at times. But I also needed to create boundaries. And that was the best advice you gave me, which is like, how long until he becomes evil, Brian? And then once he does that, you turn tail and you head out. Exactly. See, and everybody has their, I mean, I'm sure that somebody spends an hour and a half with me. <laughs> I, I begin, you know, decompensate. You know what I mean? I'm sure. So, same here. Yeah. So, so one of the things is that, and to me, this is loving. And, you know, lots of times when people talk about what's loving and what they're describing is a kind of slavish devotion. Yes. And to me, loving is about saying, wow, you know, our relationship is toxic. And we can both stay in a decent, respectful encounter for X number of minutes. That's right. You know, I'm going to say, okay, I'm, you know, it's 25 minutes or 20 minutes. I'm going to get out of here in 15 because I'm not going to indulge that part of you. And I'm That's not right. going to expose myself to that part of you. And they're grateful. I mean, one of the things that I experienced, like with my dad and I've experienced this with clients, is ultimately they could not restrain themselves, but I had control. Yes. Take care of both of us. To keep both of us safe from each other's whatever. And also the person who's spewing that kind of venom, it's compulsive. They're not saying, oh, it's minute 22. I'm going to now. <laughs> That's right. The venom. They're out of control. You know, why not just say, well, I, I love you so much. I don't want to see that side of you. That's exactly right. But, yeah. but also being disciplined about that, because when I would leave his room at minute 23, let's say, and I would walk out. And the nurses would go, well, God, that was a really quick visit. You're not coming back for another seven days, right? And I would have to stand for myself all over again because of the pressure that the nurses, and my dad was so charming and delicious and wonderful to them. And so they'd yes. be like, God, what a selfish bitch. She's leaving after right. just 20 minutes. It was so it brutal. One of the best experiences I had, one of the therapists I had way early, like in my 20s, early mm-hmm. 20s, she said, you know, Peg, she said, you're so vulnerable to everybody's judgment. You're like a satellite dish. So true. It's so true. You know, you know, just like constantly scanning the room, you know, for the slightest negativity, negative That's feedback. It. And then, you, you know, you crumble, you know, or you get all, you know, whatever. She said, pick three people whose opinion matters to you. <gasps> three mentors, living or dead. And that's your committee. And that's a way to just. Is this God, I love that, Peggy. I love that. This nurse on your committee? No. Okay. I've gotten to the point where I can be very gracious. And lots of times people are projecting. Lots of times they're just ignorant because they don't understand that people have a private face. You know, the, the angel it. on the outside and the devil That's on the inside. It. That's it. So instead of going through a lengthy explanation, you know, because who wants to expend the energy to 50 exactly. people? Exactly. And to um, capture just the right nuanced reason for them to believe you that there's a devil on the inside. Right, right. That they're never going to see. So they're, no. And they're in their whole thing around people being abandoned by their kids and stuff. That's, that's um, exactly right. The, the unbefriended elderly and all that stuff. Which is real that, by the way, there are unbefriended elderly. But one question, and I think it's really important to say, that just as a parenthesis here, when if somebody feels unbefriended, one of my question to them is, when was the last time you were a friend? So true, Peggy. So true. You know, if, and I remember my grandmother, if you want friends, be a friend. One of the things now, having started, because when I moved here for almost five years ago now, I only knew my brother and sister-in-law. Okay. So starting wow. from absolute scratch. Wow. Not easy making friends in your late 60s. So I totally can say that now to people with a great degree of compassion and understanding. It is very difficult. It's not undoable. Yeah, but that's it, right. But it is work. Getting back to the judgment thing, because you're going to, especially if, you know, as your kids get older and they start leading their own lives and everybody's going to be around with the judgments, the mother stuff. This is something you can model for your kids. Mm. You know, we don't learn this stuff just for ourselves. That's right. For the next generation. And especially in adolescence, kids 
go through this, the hypersensitivity, the peer pressure and stuff. And so one of the things is, and maybe this is also about individuation, it's about maturing. Yeah. I have an overgrown adolescent inside me. You have one inside you, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's exactly right. But part that's of exactly saying right. to that little girl, you know, okay, listen now, you know, just walk that's away. It. That's it. One of the things that I thought was so unbelievably interesting, painful and horrible, but also important about sunsetting my relationship with my dad, and I think this is true for a lot of us, is that we have these inklings, these suspicions about who our parents truly are, but we never have to really investigate them because we go off to college, we go get married, we have kids or we move out, we create lives. And if you don't have to face your family member and care for them in the end life in such up close and personal space, you never really either confirm or or deny the suspicions that you, like, you know what, I think my father might be a narcissist, but I don't think so because only sometimes he's mean, but I don't have to deal with it because I'm living my best life in San Francisco. And then when he moved in with me, all of these little things I suspected about him that might be true that I didn't want to face were suddenly the air I was breathing. And confronting the reality of the side of my dad that I never wanted to see was both heartbreaking, enraging, but ultimately like incredibly important to me becoming a grown ass version of myself. And I'm just curious if you've heard that from other people with their parents where they're like, wow, I always knew that there was a narcissist living inside my mother or my father, but now I know. (laughs) You know, it's a healthy relationship that can acknowledge both the light and the dark because every one of us has it. That's right. Did you ever see the movie Bram Stoker's Dracula? Oh, God, forever ago. That was with Winona Ryder, wasn't it? And uh, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Okay. Well, if you ever have time to watch it again, because uh-huh. I've seen it about five times, one of the things that's very fascinating is when he's in Dracula mode, the shadow detaches from Dracula hmm. Okay, and goes around the room and actually goes out by itself. The shadow wow. is so strong that it goes and can wreak harm on its own, okay? Wow. Yes. It was a brilliant thing to really show how if each of us as individuals don't deal with that side of ourselves, it becomes so empowered that, like, after 22 minutes, it just overwhelms the ego or whatever, the self, and then begins to act out. Oh, my God. It's such an apt metaphor, Peggy. Oh, it's perfect. you got to watch it. It's just Oh, my God teach a class just so I can use it. But you see this shadow and you kind of have to watch, you may not notice it the first couple of times you watch it, but if you watch for it, you can see where it just goes off on its own. Mm-hmm. And I think about, you know, I think about my dad and I, but I think addiction yeah. has a place in this because what are people really medicating? They're medicating the parts of themselves that they cannot deal with. That's right. Whatever it is. And so I think one of the things that happens with addiction is that the split becomes more and more defined. So and then the shadow, which is is just runs amok. That's right. That's exactly right. The dark side, because there could be great things in the shadow. The shadow can be both. Our gifts can be in the shadow. too. That's exactly right. We don't want to we don't want to negate the the good things about the shadow. Right. Dark side. Yeah. The dark side of our nature especially with all this stuff about self-esteem and self-compassion and da-da-da, we don't talk about the dark side of our nature. That's right. And if you don't keep that dark side up close and personal. That's right. And really pay attention to it. You know, like that woman in the parking lot or that, you know, saying about your dad, that was her shadow. That's so true. That's her judge. And she's saying, and this is what I would read on it, and this is totally... I don't know, obviously, but one of the things I noticed about the people that are so judgmental, yeah, that what it really is is it's one term for it that my term for it is the sadistic superego. Ooh, and what she That's was good. like, she's going to turn her sadistic superego on your life to give wow. herself. Wow, That's exactly okay. right. And you know what I like about that too, Peggy, is that it allows you to still be in relationship with the positive. And the self that is the good aspects, but allows you to have a healthy boundary with regard to the part of them that is so damaging if you let it be. Yeah, they're out of control. I mean, I think one of the things that, and this is true, it's true with dementia, it's true even if there's no dementia. Every one of us regresses in the face of illness and dying, okay, Mm -hmm. and aging. We all regress. 
And it's, I think it's really important to periodically get sick or get into a bad situation so that you can learn how you personally regress. Oh, so God. You can so say, hard. well, here's how I, it's just like knowing your buttons. It's like, okay, here's what, here's how I regress. Here's what, it, here's what, it, you know, when I yes. regress, because that means when someone comes to take care of me, they're not meeting Peggy who's in control and smart and, you know, has things pretty well handled. No, they're meeting the regressed Peggy child raising or living or aging or anything. And, and the fantasy is that any of us are doing it all by ourselves. That's right. Because that disappears. And I think this is one of the things I'm really in touch with is that disappears all the people that are making the contributions. Yeah, it does. It's true. Because when I think about the team I assembled, I had myself, I had my husband, I had a terrific therapist who then referred me to you, who specializes in this stuff. I had a collection of real authentic friendships that I could be dead honest about what I was going through, you know, not massaging the experience to make myself look like the good and dutiful daughter, but real talk. And, you know, there's probably even more people I can't even think of right now. Oh, and my dad's doctor is like, there's no way I could have done that by myself. Right. And so so one of the things is by seeing it as a team, first of all, you give yourself a promotion. You do. And this is about management. And so it's not management as lording over. It's management as coordinating. Mm-hmm. It's management as, as saying, okay, where, what knowledge centers are required and which are missing so we can fill those so that you're fielding an operation is what I'm trying to yes. say. Yes. And so so it's building an operation. And and sometimes it does feel like a battle. And sometimes it does feel like hurting cats. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it's it's making me think of, too, you know, I don't know if you've heard about this show, the life-changing magic of tidying up or sparking joy or whatever it is with that Japanese Marie Kondo. I love her. I love the show. It's so great. But one of the criticisms that I think is very valid of the show is that it really does kind of highlight this one article I read said it sort of spotlights women's unpaid labor where the expectation is that it's the mom's job to know where all the things are supposed to go and to get rid of the clothing when they're no longer useful and to not acquire or to acquire just enough. It's such a burden and it's not the men that get the burden. It's the woman. And I feel like as I'm watching that show, it's making me think of caregiving too. It's like us daughters think we are the only game in town. Right. And so, and this is, this is the other thing. I mean, I think that really carving out time Mm. to step back and say, what is going on here? And that's, that's one of the things you did. You went to, and you said, wait a minute, what is, what is going on? So being in the present moment, Mm -hmm. you know, people talk about mindfulness and, and, and mindfulness is a part of it. But it's also bringing your critical gifts to bear. Okay. Yeah. So you, not criticism, but to really like your ability to think, your ability to, to analyze, your ability to really like say, is this the best way to do this? Is this the best person for the job? So that you have, and I know I keep, I kept saying this yesterday, is to have distance, to have some yes. sort of, you can't have perspective without distance. That's right. For me, that breakthrough came by journaling. I was so miserable. I was so lost and so depressed without realizing I was depressed. And finally, my husband one day is like, babe, I know you don't journal that much anymore, but I need you to go out to a cafe and spend an hour by yourself because I can tell you're in a tangle. And I was like, "Ugh, God, really? I need to bring my journal. And Peggy, that was the moment where I'm like, oh my God, I'm dead inside right now. Holy crap. This is really bad. And it wasn't until I got out my journal and wrote down on a paper how dead I was inside and how hopeless I felt about the whole thing that I began to realize it was actually a crisis legit crisis and not a dutiful daughter taking care of her, you know, broken down father. It was a straight up crisis. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things where you have to swim upstream against your own programming. You have to swim upstream against your culture in many ways. Swimming upstream against our programming, swimming upstream against the culture. Isn't that always the work of this lifetime? I loved hearing what she had to say. I hope you did too. And my dear friend at the other end of this podcast, if you are in the midst of the sandwich, please know you are not alone. 
know that there is always a way through, even when it seems hopeless, even when you're overwhelmed, and that this is a season that will pass. I promise you. And I am here and I'm ready to listen to your stories of surviving the sandwich. If you need someone to just hear the truth about what you feel like right now, send me a note. I'll hold that space for you, my friend. Bronwyn at bronwyncommunications.com. Drop me a line, vent, or disagree. Call me a bad person. It's all fair game. It's all part of the conversation. But either way, thank you so much for listening. Shine on, you crazy diamonds. I'll see you next time.